Hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and uh, turn to Mark chapter 15. We're going to be going through verses 16 through 47. That's Mark 15. We're in week 30 of our series through Mark. We have one more week after this, and then we're just going to, we're going to do the whole thing over again. I'm kidding. Um, Mark 15. If you're new with us, uh, we go through the English Standard Version, the ESV, so if you want to you want to click on that, that would be great. You know, I was, this week it was a struggle for me uh, going through these passages. We're going to be talking about the death of Jesus, his crucifixion. It's been a struggle to find adequate words to describe this, to describe the death of Jesus and to help us better understand some of the emotions and the humanity and, and the reality of what exactly what Jesus suffered. And I, I came to the conclusion after, after many days um, that, that I don't really know how. I don't know how to do that. Um, I don't have the power to do that. Um, my words are never going to be what creates any weight in your heart for the cross. Um, and so because of that, I want to open up our time and pray that the Holy Spirit would create that weight for us. So let's do that. Holy Spirit, we do pray that as we read this account of Jesus' death through Mark's gospel, Lord, that you would um, create just a new place in our hearts to appreciate and to understand and to see the suffering that he endured for our sake, Lord, so that we gain new affections for Jesus, so that we commit to patterning our lives after the life of Christ with joy. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I thought about a couple of things as I was preparing this. I thought about how the cross formed the life and the story of Jesus and what happens to our stories then after they intersect with his story. Um, You know, we have this default in all of us. It's a human default, okay? We have this default to pursue the thing that makes us the most happy, Like, that's happening right now with all of you guys. It's going to continue to happen the rest of your life. We default to pursuing the thing that makes us most happy. And I'm reminded that, um, I'm reminded of this every Friday, actually. Uh, People Magazine gave us a gift subscription. Uh, So every Friday I get, you know, I get the face of Angelina Jolie or Matthew McConaughey, you know, uh, in my mailbox. So if you ever wondered what a pastor does all day, uh, shoot. Just let that one out right there. Um, but here's, here's what's interesting about that, right? Um, and honestly, it really was a gift subscription. You guys are like, oh, a gift subscription, huh, Martin? Like, that's convenient, right? How long have you been subscribing to that magazine? Um, well, we can talk about that afterwards. But, um, but people on the cover of People, they, they represent something for us, I think. They represent those who've attained much of what we desire to make us happy and fulfilled. When we look at these celebrities and the abundance that just literally is like falling from them and surrounds their lives, and yet there's that nagging, unavoidable reality. When you even read their stories sometimes in the magazine that, that um, it, it, it lasts only until you die. All of these things, all of these accumulated possessions and wealth, and the question is, well, what then? You know, what then? What's after that? Does pursuing the life of your dreams lead to a dream life after death? Is the question that I'm always struck with, right, when I'm reading about what's going on with the latest celeb. In fact, uh, maybe some of you guys have seen some of Jim Carrey's latest antics, 
right? I mean, Jim Carrey, you know, one of the comedians of our time, massive success, A-list Hollywood celebrity, a household name. I, I, I saw a little clip of him on YouTube the other day. He uh, came to a fashion show, Entertainment Weekly is there. Don't ask me how I know all this stuff. And, and the lady has the microphone, and she's interviewing him, and this is what he says. He says, I came tonight to find the most meaningless thing I could do. He said, all of this is mean. I mean, it's live, you know, national television, Entertainment Weekly. All of this is meaningless, he said. <laughs> you, got the, you got the interviewer like looking at the camera going, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do with that. You know, but here's the thing. Jimbo's right. I mean, Jimbo had a point, right? He was asking the right question. He was asking the right question about the trajectory and the story of our lives. He just wasn't grabbing the right answer that was right in front of them. Jesus had a different story, which is what we're going to see this morning. And in fact, if somebody had sat down with Jesus and asked him like a question, like if it was a high school counselor and they would have said, hey, you know what? Uh, just a question for you, Jesus. Where do you, where do you see your life heading? Like, where do you see yourself moving into the future? You know, I've seen some of your carpentry work and, you know, it's not bad. So maybe, maybe there's a, a place for you in that industry down uh, the road. Jesus would, wouldn't have answered any of those questions other than saying, oh, my future? Oh, my future is the cross. I came, here, I came here for a very specific purpose. What's interesting as we look through the life of Jesus, as we've seen it laid out in Mark, is that Jesus didn't pursue a life. He pursued a death. Isn't that funny? Maybe you've never thought of it like that. The life pursuit of Jesus was death on a cross. So as we ask that question, even at the beginning here, what does this tell us about our own life pursuits? Because all of us will experience pain along the way. But Jesus' story answers the question all stories ask, which is, how do we endure pain? And why is it worth it to do that? Why is it worth it even if we endure the pain that we're going to experience? And we know that any other kind of story, it doesn't carry any meaning for us if, if those elements don't exist in it, right? Stories without suffering don't do anything for us. They're not inspiring. Like there's never been a great book or a great movie made about some dude that was just born with a silver spoon in his mouth, you know, got straight A's in high school, graduated, went to college, aced everything, got the career he wanted, got the family he wanted, everything went great, everything he sought after he attained, every relationship he had was never broken, all the relationships with his kids were just like dynamite all his entire life, and then he gets to the end and he dies a nice peaceful death in his sleep, doesn't even know what hit him. Oh my gosh, that's like the worst movie I've ever heard of. Like, who would go see that? Who would want to read that? Well, none of us, because none of us can relate to that, because it doesn't reflect any of our lives. And yet, this is the kind of storyline that we attempt to weave in our own lives, isn't it? But the story of Jesus and the cross illustrates to us what it means to endure pain when you have something that makes the pain worth enduring. See, on the cross, Jesus endures to the end so that his followers will have an end worth enduring for. So that's why when we look at Jesus, it's important to recognize 
the title of this sermon, which is that he's the crucified Jesus. Just like it's important that I, that I know you in light of your story, in light of your pain, in light of the things that you've suffered through, it's probably important for our relationship that I know what you've endured through. Because if we go ahead and think of Jesus in less definitive ways than the crucified Jesus, we're going to think less of him and relate less definitively to him. And what we're going to see as we read through the text right now is we're going to see the weakness and frailty of his humanity in the last day of his life, allowing us to feel a closeness to him because of our own frailty, because of our own humanity. So let's just pick that right up. Mark chapter 15, I'm going to start at verse 16. We're going to read all the way through. It says this, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and they, twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Verse 21, and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. And so also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Verse 33, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. Verse 40, there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and the younger of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Verse 42, and when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, 
Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. And this is God's Word, and we're going to stop right there. We're going to unpack this morning three particular ways here that we see Jesus suffered on his way and then on the cross, and then see what his suffering, what his death, what it calls us to be in our lives, lived out and laid out before him. So what did, what did Jesus suffer? What are we looking at here when we look at Jesus coming to the cross? What did he suffer? What did he endure? Well, three things that we see in this text, and many more, but three that we're going to look at this morning is he suffered verbal abuse. Jesus suffered verbal abuse. He also suffered physical abuse, and then he also suffered being rejected or forsaken by his father. So when we look down at verse 16, we see that Jesus has already been tortured. When we go back to verse 65 where he was tied to a post and he received just these inhumane lashings from a leather braided whip, which is what they used at the time, which would have been loaded with metal and bones, and they just would have lashed away at his back. And you can imagine just the scene. You can imagine sort of the physical uh, toll that this would have taken on him to endure through something like that. In fact, it was a beating so severe that many died before even getting to the cross, other people that were crucified in this manner by Rome. So we want to picture Jesus in this moment. This is hard but important for us to do. We want to picture Jesus, a victim of violent acts most of us have only seen in films or read about in graphic novels. His back is torn to shreds. Black and blue bruises just covering every part of his body. Streams of dried blood on his arms coming down his legs. And now the sentence has come down, crucifixion. This is how it's going to end for Jesus. And then a battalion of Roman soldiers lead him away, it says in verse 16. And so we get a sense from the text when we read about the treatment from these Roman soldiers that prisoners like Jesus were kind of a, kind of a spectacle for them. They were like sport for them, almost humorous to them. Because to them, Jesus was nothing more than just some common Jewish man that just claimed to be king. They probably thought there was something wrong with his head. And so they use this as part of their shame and humiliation tactics against him. They clothe him in a purple cloak, it says. They twist together a crown of thorns. They hail him as king, and they kneel down in mock allegiance before him. And it caused me to think, you know, how many of us have fallen victim at one time or another to, to verbal abuse, right? I think a lot of us can... Can attest to that. People who hurl insults, people who take something that's maybe true about us and they twist it in a way to shame and humiliate us. Maybe you can recall a moment like that in your life. 
a moment of injustice like this, and you remember how powerless you felt to do anything about it, and yet we see something a little differently here with Jesus, because he wasn't powerless, but he chose to remain silent. He chose to endure that level of verbal abuse at the hands of those who were ignorant to his identity. So we see Jesus suffering under this verbal abuse, and then we see physical abuse. When we look down at verse 21, the soldiers fashioned together a crown of thorns that would have been laid on his head while the thorns sunk deep into his skin. And again, you have to use your imagination and picture the blood running down his face, maybe coming into his eyes and ears as they struck him repeatedly on the head, the thorns piercing down even deeper. You can imagine the spit being hurled at his face while the the saliva runs down into his swollen eyes, burning his fresh cuts and his sores. Like this was real. And again, there's just not, there's not an adequate way to describe this. I remember when the movie The Passion of the Christ came out, whenever that was, 15 years ago, and I was thankful for it because it was able to take my imagination beyond what I was comfortable with when I thought about what this might have looked like and felt to the Lord. And I think that's important for us as we read about a violence that uncovers the roots of all of our depravity, which is this, to beat God into submission. Dude, is that not real? I know that's not how we like to think of the cross, is people beating God into submission so that their will would be done. But that's what was happening. That's what was taking place. And again, when we see Jesus, the picture, the, the, more, the more edited picture that we get here in Mark, and I want to stick to Mark. I can be making all kinds of cross references to the other Gospels to kind of fill in some of these gaps. I don't want to do that. I just want to deal with what Mark is telling us right here. And one has to marvel at the heart of Jesus as he suffers under these attacks, right? I mean, he understood. He knew the power at his disposal, and yet he willingly allowed ignorant men to perform violent acts of verbal and physical mistreatment on him. And then it says, when the soldiers had enough, they led him to Golgotha. In verse 22, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh. This would have been something that would have helped dole the pain. It would have been the one act of mercy that these soldiers would offer to a man that was sentenced to the cross. And yet, he rejects it, wanting instead to experience the full depth of torment for our grief and for our sorrows. Maybe you have suffered physical abuse. And this is hard to hear because it reminds you of things that you've never wanted anyone to know. Let this give you a measure, a measure of comfort as you consider the suffering of Jesus, who the book of Hebrews chapter 4 tells us we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us and our weaknesses. The mocking and the verbal assaults that Jesus experienced, the physical abuse that Jesus experienced is something that allows him to understand the pain and the suffering that sometimes we have fallen victim to in a fallen 
world. We have somebody who is able to sympathize because of the cross. And again, we don't want to miss that. So the mocking and the verbal assaults, they continue even after until the sixth hour, it says, when everything goes dark for three hours and Jesus cries out to his Father in verse 34, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This humiliating verbal abuse and this excruciating physical abuse would lead to the moment his father turns his face away from his only begotten son who was carrying the weight and wickedness of our sin. And you know, I don't think that we have enough capacity to understand the severity of Jesus' words in this moment, really what's happening right there. But we know what separation feels like, don't we? We know what separation from a loved one feels like in a, in a lesser sense. Jesus felt this despair on the cross. He felt this despair when in your weakest moments, the ones closest to you vanish. They're gone. They turn away. They abandon. He understands what this is like. And he utters a loud cry in verse 37. And we know from John 19, his loud cry said, it is finished. And then he breathes his last breath. And then it says the veil in the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. What that indicates to us is that the high priest will no longer, the Jewish high priest will no longer have to go into the most holy place to atone for the sins of the people because atonement has been satisfied by Jesus, the new high priest who has obtained redemption for the redeemed. Man, we could spend weeks on these passages. We're doing a, doing a pretty fast overview here. But this is what Jesus suffered and endured for all those that he saved. This is what he suffered through. This is what he endured too. So the question for us that we have to ask as we read something as traumatic as this is, what does his suffering and death call those who have been saved by it to be? What does this call us to be? Because this can't just be that one part in the story of Jesus that we usually hear on Good Friday. We try to go downcast a little bit. We play some sad songs, and we just kind of move on with this idea that I'm glad he did that. I'm glad this is my ticket to heaven. I'm glad that he's forgiven my sins. But to move on from that and think that we somehow live a life separated from that. When in effect, Jesus called us to this life. The pursuit of Jesus in his life is the pursuit that Jesus calls us to in our lives if we follow him. So then what does his death call those of us who have been saved to be? Not to do, but to be so that we can do. It's the first thing. It calls us to be cross carriers. The cross calls us to carry our own you go back to Mark 8, 34, it says, if anyone would come after me, Jesus said, let him, what? Deny himself. Let him take up his cross and follow me. Simon of Cyrene, who we just read about, he illustrates this in verse 21, when he literally takes the cross of Jesus, he takes it up and he follows him to Calvary. So we get this vivid sort of illustration of, of literally 
what it meant for somebody to carry the cross beam, which is what they would have carried, the cross beam of the cross, up to the mountain. It would have been hammered on, and then the victim is hung on the cross. Carrying our cross means you will deny what most gratifies your flesh in exchange for what most satisfies your soul. That's what that means to carry your cross. You will do without to be whole within. Now, my wife and I are in this stupid diet called the Whole30 right now, right? Now, if you get into the Whole30, and you can do it without getting into it, but my wife doesn't do anything without getting into it, um, which means she already bought the 400-page novel that she already has already read nine times because she wants to know what it is we're getting into here. But this is what the Whole30, which is a 30-day diet of getting off of sugar, um, getting off of grains, and basically uh, changing the way that you, the relationship that you have with food. And that's how it's promoted. It's not a diet. It's meant to change your relationship with food, to change your desire for food that's not good for you, okay? The cross is where your desire for what's killing you has been redeemed by Christ's death. We're talking about desire here. Because sin has infected every part of your body and soul with spiritual diabetes and cancer. That's what's going on here inside of us. And the cross happens to be our only remedy. This guy sent me this thing today that said there was this group of people uh, that were going to respond to Hurricane Irma as it was coming in by getting out their guns and shooting at it, hoping that, that that's what was going to like stop Hurricane Irma from coming into Florida. Like, I kid you not. Like, he sent me the link and everything, and, you know, the, uh, you know, the government had to come in and said, please do not do that. That's not going to stop the hurricane. This is the equivalent. We laugh. This is the equivalent of trying to kill our sin by something other than the cross, by something other than carrying our cross. And that's why taking up our cross makes sense to those who are being saved. Because listen, by pursuing a death instead of a life, we gain life everlasting, which then gives us a reason to endure suffering and then have meaning for it when it inevitably comes. So the suffering of Jesus calls us to be cross carriers as we pursue life. Two, it calls us to be cross reflectors. The cross calls us to reflect the crucified Jesus. Here's the thing. The world needs Christians who endure suffering. I need you to hear me on this really clearly. The world needs Christians who endure suffering, not try to find any way possible to end it. They need to see people who endure through the pain that they are suffering through. That's strange to think, isn't it? But when we endure the cross that we carry, the world sees a strength and a hope that is completely unknown to them. It's completely unknown to them. Again, not a hope that inspires them to carry on, but one that calls them to reconsider who and what they're depending on to carry them. 
The centurion in verse 39, he saw Jesus. He saw this brutally beaten man, and his eyes became open to the truth. The centurion was not standing there thinking, you know, man, I should just learn to be more thankful because people like this guy suffer so much more than me. That's not what he was thinking. He had a confrontation with God in that moment. That's what happened to the centurion. It makes me think of uh, Zach and Jillian Watson. They allowed me to share this this morning. I remember a few years back when their daughter Violet died at birth. And people said to them, and they said to me, I could never be strong like you have been in this. What people were confronted with in that moment was not the strength of the Watsons. They were confronted with the weakness and the strength of Christ. Strength through suffering because suffering is what leads us to a Savior. That's what they experienced when they saw the Watsons holding on. Do people have a confrontation with God when they see you or do they just see a person who found something that works for them? Right? Do you guys get what I'm saying with that? Don't be an inspiration to people. Don't be an inspiration. Be an invitation for people to know who your life reflects because it's shaped like the cross. So his suffering calls us to being a cross carrier, a cross reflector, and then finally, a cross comforter. The cross gives us a comfort to give those who are suffering. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and God of all comfort, he says, who comforts us in our affliction so that, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. It's because of our cross carrying and our cross reflecting that we're able to offer sacrificial rather than superficial comfort. If you look down at verse 40, the women in verse 40 through 41, what did they do? They ministered to Jesus, it says. They stood by him in his darkest hour. What could they offer him? What could they possibly offer him? Their presence. Their presence. You look at Joseph of Arimathea in verses 42 through 46, who asked for Jesus' body even though it could cost him everything, being associated with the man that just got crucified. He was on the council that condemned him. And now he's asking for Jesus' body. What could Joseph possibly have to offer Jesus? Well, he offered his care. He offered to care for his broken and dead body. This was sacrificial comfort, not superficial comfort. It was sacrificial. It cost them something because the cross had just given them everything to sacrifice. And that's what the cross does. The cross gives us a reach into the recesses of people's affliction. Because Jesus died, you can be a friend to somebody who's lonely and who's had people walk out on them. You can hold the hand of someone who's grieving. You can be present for somebody in a hospital bed 
You can cry with somebody who's lost a loved one or is who experiencing just debilitating sickness. You can stand by someone who's being mocked and bullied. You can remind them that Jesus endured all that they're suffering and someday all suffering will come to an end because the cross has made it so. Comfort now is possible because of the cross. So let's go back to the beginning, the question I asked. How do we endure pain? Well, we endure pain with our eyes on the one who endured it so that he might be our enduring hope through our own. And let's read this rightly, not just for a future hope, but also for a full and a meaningful present. The crucified Jesus calls us to a crucified life, a crucified life pursuit. And so the question we have to ask is, is this what our story illustrates? Because this is what we know to be true when we look at the life of Jesus. If our life pursuits shift from trying to fulfill desires that can't satisfy, we will naturally be confronted with those that can. If Hebrews 12.2 is true, that for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, and it must be the same joy that awaits us when we pursue the crucified life. See, the story of someone who endures suffering and acquires a better life can inspire people. We like those stories. They're inspirational. But what if there was someone who chose to suffer for the suffering so that one day suffering would end for all eternity so that there was a guarantee that suffering would never return? What if there was a story like that? But that is this story. That's the story of the crucified Jesus. Suffering for others so that others might know that their suffering isn't meaningless. Because it's in the heart of you and it's in the heart of me. It's in the heart of all people to avoid suffering. In fact, the men in verse 32 who were mocking Jesus, what did they say? They said, let the Christ come down from the cross that we may see and believe. But it was precisely because he was the Christ that he stayed on the cross. So like it says in John 6.40 that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. They wanted to look at a Jesus that they could beat into their own submission. We're looking at a Jesus who submitted to the will of the Father so that when we suffered, we could endure and someday see him face to face. Turn with me to Isaiah 53, and I want to end our time reading this together. I want to go all the way back to Isaiah 53, make a sharp left, go back into the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, I'm going to start in verse 3, and I, I want to read this as a way for us to walk away today remembering the love of Christ for us what he endured, how he endured it, what it means for us to pursue a crucified life because of a crucified Jesus. Verse 3 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And like a lamb that has led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And let's go all the way to the end of verse 12, where it says, Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That is the crucified Jesus. And it's repentance and it's forgiveness that draws out our desire to want to live and pursue a crucified life so that we experience the same joy that was set before him as he endured the cross. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you for a passage with so much weight and heaviness in our lives, Lord. Our lives that need weight and heaviness to hold us down, to anchor us, to put our feet on solid ground. That's what these verses do for us as we see the love reflected by Christ who endured what we will never know and never understand for the sake of providing us with a life that would know how to experience joy through whatever we may be confronted with. Lord, what a great truth. What a hopeful truth for those of us that have repented of our sins, who have said, Lord, I get this. I need you to be that atonement and that sacrifice. My life pursuit has been one that has been seeking after everything to fulfill a desire that will never be met. And I see that in you, you are the one, you alone can change my desires for those things and have those shift and be redeemed to desires that bring about joy even when I experience pain in this world. We know that we have the hope someday of being face-to-face with you where there will be no more crying, there will be no more tears, there will be no more suffering. Lord, this allows us to carry our cross, to reflect the cross, and to offer comfort because of the cross. Lord, let this be true of us as you continue to sanctify us by the grace and love of Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.